Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson with the 105th and very different edition of the PJ Archive. It's a documentary I've put together on the life and career of Alma Cogan, who was the most successful British female singing star of the 1950s and the highest paid female entertainer of her era. She starred in the UK's top-rated radio shows, had her own television series, and had international hits with songs such as The Tennessee Waltz and Just Couldn't Resist Her with Her Pocket Transistor. Known as the girl with the laugh in her voice due to a unique inflection when she sang, Alma was also known for wearing glamorous dresses and for throwing star-studded parties. Over many years, I got to interview people who knew Alma Cogan best, including her sister Sandra Caron, her fiancé Brian Morris, and a host of Alma's famous friends and fans. And here are some of them to sum up the superstar that Alma was. Firstly, the broadcaster David Jacobs. During her years of glory, Alma Cogan was like one of the Beatles would have been had there only been one Beatle. Or if, if you remove a Beatle from the floor, that's how big Alma Cogan was. She was the biggest star of her day, of her type. And wherever she went, she was mobbed by everyone and was a hugely talented lady. Now George Martin, the Beatles record producer, who also worked with Alma. Well, she was a star. I mean, she really was... In those days, she was the kind of equivalent of Elizabeth Taylor in the film world. She was the, the, the main person in England who really did sort of put over pop music uh, impeccably. And when the Beatles first started, they knew perfectly well that um, she was the tops. Next is fellow singer Cliff Richard, with whom Alma appeared on television. She had glamour. She had the excitement of someone like a Brenda Lee, but before Brenda Lee... And to me, Alma was a dynamic, bright, up performer that uh, even, I bet you, that even if you didn't like her voice, you'd have liked her as a performer. She was very exciting to watch, always entertaining. And as I say, she was a singer, and blow me down, she sang well. Actress and admirer Maureen Lippmann. She must have been the first English Jewish star. I mean, it just was unheard of for anyone who was one of us to do that well. She kind of opened a door for girls like me who were, if you like, vivacious rather than pretty or beautiful and who had talent but were not going to get on via being a blonde bombshell or having the right shaped boobs, you know. Alma Angela Cohen Cogan was born in Whitechapel in East London on May the 19th, 1932. Her father Mark's family had arrived in the UK from Russia and her mother Faye's family were refugees from Romania. Alma had an older brother named Ivor, and a younger sister Sandra, who here recalls their early life as a family. My father had dress shops all over London and uh, where we lived in Worthing. We were Jewish, but we weren't a typical Jewish family. By that I mean we, we never had Friday night dinners, because everyone seemed to be dispersed at some time or other. Alma was having singing lessons, I was having dancing lessons. I had one uncle that had a band, was a band leader, 
But my father sang, and every weekend all the family would come over, and we had a microphone, and all his brothers sang. And we were brought up on jazz. My father was very interested in jazz and the Andrews sisters and all that kind of music. I don't know if she really wanted to sing, funnily enough. And we were made to get up and perform in, in front of the family. I was too, which I hated. And I'm not sure if Alma really liked it. We were, we were made to perform. And I think when she was about, about 11, when she had that deep voice, my mother and father took her to the tea dances up in uh, London. That's when she sang with uh, Ted Heath's band. We were in uh, Brighton, living in Worthing, and uh, there was a man that owned a theatre there called Albert Rose, the Grand Theatre, and he gave her a break. I think she was about 14. It was her first appearance on the stage. That was where Max Miller saw her and said that she was absolutely wonderful and wrote about it in the newspaper. He said, don't mind about me, come and see this young girl that's on the bill, Alma Cogan. In fact, she was rehearsing one day, and a voice from the back of the uh, stall said, uh, excuse me, dear, when you sing that song, if, if, you, if you don't mind me saying so, you should really tell the story. And she looked out into the audience, and it was uh, Vera Lynn. And here is the singer and forces sweetheart, Vera Lynn. Alma was a completely different personality to myself. She was very outgoing. She was very uh, jolly. She always sang with that sort of almost like a giggle in her voice. Uh, She sang different songs than I did. And uh, she presented herself completely different. Uh, So, of course, never for a moment did I ever consider Alma arrival because after the war you know there was a certain type of music during the war in the 40s and once the the 50th came in the music did change there was very little very few songs at that time that i found i liked i could sing but as far as alma was concerned there was loads of songs that suited her alma's sister sandra caron again i think at the beginning it was no it was just a bit of a lark Alma was adre- wanted to be a dress designer and go to college. So, uh, you know, I didn't think it was even thought of that she was going to... My father might have, but I don't think Alma did. Well, she told my mother and myself that she'd uh, given herself three years and 500 pounds to make the grade in show business. And if she hadn't made it in that time, she was going to give it up. My uncle was a band leader at the Café Anglais, and he got her in there. She did a two-week spot. And then somebody suggested that she go to HMV, and my father took her there and hung outside the offices for weeks, and that's when they met Walter Ridley, who was her first record producer. And he gave her a test, and they signed her up. I'm sure it was to impress my father. He was a stage door, stage father, rather. He, he really believed that she was different and uh, was going to be extraordinary, which, of course, came true. But he didn't... Uh, unfortunately, get around to see that. It was, a mi- I'm sure, mixed feelings, because on one hand, she didn't have him around to push her, but on the other hand, she felt she had to do it for him, I believe. After she'd made her first recording, To Be Worthy of You, there was a, a man called Jack Jackson, who was a DJ at the time, and he took a fancy to it and played it. And it was through that some radio producer invited her in, and uh, she got that her first radio show called Gently Bentley. 
which led to take it from here. They were looking for a replacement. They found her and June Whitfield. The much-loved comedy actress June Whitfield herself recalled. I mean, Alma came into her own, you know, as, as Mrs Glum when she was doing that terrible <laughs> at the top of the stairs. You never understood a word Mrs Glum said, but it was all those things like um, when he came in and said, hello, 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 um, have, you seen, have you seen the biro? Mother wants to do her eyebrows, you know. It was <laughs> there was a, a voice from the top of the stairs. Here's Dennis Norden, one of the writers of Take It From Here and The Glums. It was a very good decision we came to because we thought, well, we have to have Alma because um, that voice is so fresh and uh, cheers up the whole of, of, of the programme. Yeah, I thought she was something very special. Discovered her for, for, um, to take it from here, but uh, I, it, it, she would have burst forth anyway. She was one of those flowers that would have come up through the ground anyway, uh, and it was only a matter of time because there were so many opportunities then, you see. It was her pop records that made Alma Cogan an international star, and her sister Sandra remembers the first British hit. Her big break was when uh, they fi- finally found a novelty song, which was what was popular in America at the time. Um, and it was a song, funnily enough, that Bill Cotton, who was her friend, published, Bottom Blues. And it sold over 100,000 copies. It was a huge hit. Bellbottom Blues made number four in the UK singles chart in March 1954. Her only number one in Britain was Dreamboat the following year. Alma had a long string of hits here. And in the 1960s, she also charted in Germany, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, Iceland, Israel, Lebanon, India, Japan, South Africa and Australia. Here's the Australian disc jockey Alan Freeman, who was based in Britain for most of his career. Alma Cogan, I, I can honestly say, didn't have the greatest of vocal powers, but the, but the vocal power she had, she used to a full extent, and it, uh, it, it somehow got through to you. And while I suppose that you could, you could find singers who vocally had better vocal cords over the years, uh, there was nobody who, who really was capable of using what they had to such devastating effect. Maureen Lippman. She had a, a, a country quality to her voice, which I loved. She did have that kind of style and razzmatazz of the country singer. And yet, of course, she was capable of doing wonderful ballads. And she always sang the lyric as if she was telling a story. I mean, obviously not with the sort of the silly season songs where all the da- babies dimple beer. I don't think I could believe that song when, it, when I first heard it. Loved it, of course. But... Actress and singer Barbara Windsor. I knew Alma really well. What a what a mark. I mean, I loved Alma because she was glamorous. She was the first lady to come out in those big, fabulous frocks and that twinkly, lovely look, smile she had. I love her records. Blow me a kiss from across the room. A line a day when you're far away. That's how she goes. The break in her voice. Fellow pop and TV star Cliff Richard. She had this kind of laughing voice technique that was partly her. I mean, again, it sort of sums up her character. I think she probably found a sound long before singers were into sounds, really. I mean, in, in, in those days, if you think about the Sinatras and people, yes, there was an in, a distinctive sound about the way he sang, but that was more in just the voice he had. With Alma, you got the feeling that she'd found a sound that suited her, 
and that attracted the audiences, and, and she used that. Vera Lynn. She was very much like Doris Day. It, she had a voice of that time. She, she was uh, an individual. You couldn't mistake her voice because of this little sort of light-hearted giggle that she had. You know, whenever you heard it, you knew immediately, oh, that's Alma Cogan. Alma Cogan was the first British artist to record a pop song in six different languages. French, German, Spanish, Italian and Japanese, as well as English. That song was Tell Him. On the strength of her success in Germany, she recorded other songs in German too. Alma's recording of Tennessee Waltz topped the Beatles in the Swedish charts for three months. A novelty song just couldn't resist her with her pocket transistor is said to have knocked Elvis Presley off the number one spot in Japan and remained there for ten months. Another British recording star from Alma's era was Lonnie Donegan. Not my gag, but it was right round show business. Was that um, she'd be walking down the street and the street lights came on? She'd stop and do twenty minutes. <laughs> she was a great ham, you know. She's always ready to do an act. It was in Japan that Alma Cogan first appeared on colour television, which showed off her famous stage dresses to perfection. She also appeared frequently on American television. She had her own British TV series on the BBC in 1957 and appeared on countless others. Dennis Norden again. But she was also one of those people, I remember thinking at the time, who took to television without any nerves at all and absolutely naturally, as you saw her on television, that's how it was. A lot of people, when they went on television from radio, pulled on a kind of refinement like a, a coat. Um, Alma was, it was just Alma, and um, I don't think it held any terrors for her. Alma's sister, Sandra. Oh, it was like a glove. There was no transition, almost, if that makes sense. She was a natural. British pop star Marty Wilde, who also had hits in the 50s and 60s. Alma did a duet with me, and I can remember... She was very, very easy to get along with. She was very charming because, I mean, b- me being who I was, you know, I like this young sort of a rock and roll star, you know, like a 17 years of age or whatever I was, or 18. She needn't have been as gracious and, and lovely as she was. She was a delight to work with. She was an absolute charmer, very polite. Lonnie Donegan. Oh, fine. First-class professional. Uh, she was always willing to cooperate in any way artistically on stage. There was no big deal with her at all, you know. If it made sense, great. If it didn't make sense, we didn't do it. Actor Jack Douglas, best known for starring in Carry On films, was a friend of Alma. You forgot at times just how big a star she was because she was completely natural, complete fun, and there was no sort of, uh, oh, I must lay down, I have a performance to give. There was none of that, you know. Alma would be on the, stage, on the side of the stage cracking jokes. and Ladies and gentlemen, Alma Cogan, excuse me, go on and do it. You know. that's, uh, that's a gift, great gift. Actress June Whitfield. I was terribly impressed with all her dresses, you know, these great big dresses that she used to wear. And I thought, now what am I going to do? Because I can't wear things like that. And so I went quite the other way, and I think I dressed in a rather butch fashion, sort of very tailored, and with a turban. And I've seen photographs since, and I must have been out of my mind, because I looked dreadful. (laughs) We once did a charity show, I really can't remember what it was, but it was at the Scala. And uh, we did share a dressing room, 
And I know I, I said to Alma, you know, how do you, how do you get into these dresses? They're so tight and the tiny waist and everything. And Alma said, oh, I just sort of collect it all and push it all up, you know, <laughs> which I thought was pretty good. Cliff Richard. But my first impression of her was definitely frocks. I kept thinking, how many can this woman have? She almost came out for every song in a different costume. And I don't know how they had cupboards big enough because the skirts seemed to be so wide. You know, I mean, I don't know where they hung them up. Sandra Caron. Mostly in the flat, so there wasn't much room. We had special covers made. She designed them because she was a dress designer at art school, and uh, she thought, what a good idea. And she, they got bigger and bigger. The more, the more successful, the more people liked it and wrote in. And it was a black-and-white television then, saying, oh, what colour's this, what colour's that? She put more colours in. So when she toured around the country and did her live shows, the dress was as important as her singing. Fellow British singer Petula Clark, whose chart hits also started in 1954. We, we were the same age, Alma and I. I suppose, in a way, Alma and I were kind of, not exactly rivals, but in a way we were, yeah, yes. <laughs> and it was always, you know, who's going to have the most sequins on their dress, you know, and of course it, it actually didn't suit me at all. I mean, Alma, Alma could get away with it and I couldn't. Dancer and friend Lionel Blair. And I remember there was, she got fed up. She said, I wish I could change my image. I said, Alma, why don't you do one show without wearing the big dresses? Wear straight dresses. Wear really thick. She went, what a wonderful idea. And she did this one show without the big dresses. Well, the male came in, hated it. They absolutely hated it. She never, and she couldn't. They loved those teeth. I remember we did one show together, and she had, in a half an hour, 11 changes of costume. Lonnie Donegan. Whenever we played in the variety theatres in those days, which was all the time, one would appear Monday morning, 10 o'clock, to do the band call and set the stage and get the lighting right, you know, ready for the evening. And many, many times, almost invariably, the set would still be up from the week before. There would be some elaborate lighting, you know, someone would have a ballroom scene or something like that, you'd use plastic chandeliers hanging down, which was a wonderful straight line for us because we always, we always used to use it when... The, when the auditorium was full of people, we'd look up and say, Oh, Alma Cogan was here last week, she's left her earrings. Because <laughs> she always wore these great earrings, like chandeliers. <laughs> and that was, that, was a, that was our big standard laugh on Alma. Alma's fiancé, Brian Morris. She was a great influence on show business in this country, on television in this country, in her heyday. I mean, she was the biggest thing. And Alma was always the first of that particular period. I'm not saying Coco Chanel time, but of a particular period, Alma was the first one that always wore boa feathers. Um, She always had scarves. She was always very, very astute. When she decorated her um, office, she did it in a material because she copied a lot of the stuff and appreciated a lot of the stuff that the Americans did and their new way of... Of, of, of using materials to decorate and she was always a great fan of that William Morris print she did and then she'd match out a certain colour and have cushions made of it so she was always very into into style yeah style was a very big thing with her Sandra Caron she was a wonderful artist I have several sketches and paintings she had done and they're wonderful Lionel Blair it was funny she always would do drawings of herself sometimes with a small nose and I always thought she wanted to, she, secretly she wanted to just change 
just have a little bob. And she didn't need it, because Alma was Alma. Alma didn't need to change anything. But secretly, yes, and she would do, oh, I'd love to look like this, or I'd love to wear that, and I'd love to do this. Marty Wilde. I remember her being very vivacious. She had very dark hair, dark eyes, and beautifully dressed. She was always immaculate. She, she, looked, like a, she looked like what she was. She looked like a real classy lady. Sandra Caron reflects on the extraordinary abilities of her sister Alma. I think people thought she was a lot older because she seemed older and looked older, but she was young and uh, never thought of leaving home, actually. It was the central focus of our lives, all being together. She was a very, very unusual person, and for a woman. She managed her own career. I know the grades were her agents, but she didn't have a manager, so billing and other important factors of a career like that, she managed herself. She tried one, didn't like it, so she, so that was sort of extraordinary and unusual. We had uh, 12 telephones, two secretaries, and a lady making dresses. My mother took care of some business, except she wasn't really a businesswoman, but it was all in a very... Well, it wasn't small, but it was in, all, in a flat every day, every day. Those were the goings-on. So it wasn't a normal life. She was a, a big perfectionist. Everything had to be right. She was quite dogmatic, and everything had to be right. She was strong character. Lionel Blair. She would have been a very good director or counsellor. You'd say, what, what should I do here? She goes, you know what you ought to do? Ba-boom, 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 and she'd be proud. And if she'd give a criticism, it wouldn't be a bitchy criticism. Not, she wouldn't be bitchy. If it was, it would be right on the button. <laughs> you go, oh yes. Sandra Caron. It's not really explainable. She was tuned into something else. I think she's, she saw more than the average person. She had a wider vision, a larger scope than the average person as a human being. But I think she saw more than than we all than we did. She her visions were on a grander scale. She could be on the f- three telephones at once and then uh, and have a conversation with three people and keep it going. Lionel Blair again. We went to Venice together, and the manager of the hotel was very one of Alma's expressions, very twirly. Oh, very twirly, you see. And he was a nice associate, and he became our friend, and he recognised Alma. And uh, when we got back, she said, you know, he's dead right for Shirley Bassey. So we told Shirley, she told Shirley about him. Shirley went to Venice, met him and married him. (laughs) So she was right. She was a great um, arranger of people. She loved pairing off people. Actor and friend Jack Douglas. She had an insight, I think, to people, uh, which was very clever, because she was able to look at somebody and sort of be able to work that person out which with us it takes time you know you meet somebody and after a period of three or four weeks you say oh he likes the same thing or she does Alma was able to know that right away so she threw people together who should never have been thrown together but it worked maybe that comes with I mean if you know that you're never going to see old age maybe you gain something it's like a blind person loses the eyes and gains so much more. Uh, I think maybe that was the case with Alma. Maybe she gained because she knew what was going to happen.
She was a very wise lady, which was strange for such a young person. She had a maturity which comes with older age. You know? uh, and I think with Alma, she had that at a young age. Maybe that was the fact she knew what was going to happen in her life. Sandra Caron. Her vulnerable side was um, hidden, I think. Hidden to certainly a lot of people, and even hidden at home. TV and radio presenter David Jacobs. I was never with Alma at her times of seriousness, as it were. But of course there was. I mean, she was a great worker for charity. And you can't do that laughing all the time. Or perhaps Alma Cogan did manage to, because she was so bubbly. Jack Douglas. She was an incredible person. I don't think I've ever met anybody who laughs so much. You know, I think she really lived for laughter. Cliff Richard. Well, she was a very glamorous figure. But in private, she seemed to be uh, unbelievably friendly. Everybody she met seemed to love her, and she seemed to love them in return. So she had this very outgoing personality, very caring sort of personality. Vera Lynn. Oh, she was very easy, she was very likeable, she was very fun. Lionel Blair. Loved, universally loved by people. I didn't know anybody, I don't know anybody that said, I couldn't stand Alcott. I don't know one person that ever said that. And that's pretty unique to say about a person. But I don't know anybody that didn't love Alma Cogan. Alan Freeman. She was so important to everybody's life because, because she wasn't just the glitzy show business girl. She could, she could turn on all the glitz if she wanted to. Never over the top. But she was very warm. And she made you feel that you were a person too. She never, because of all her stardom, all her success... She never, ever gave the impression of ever trying to talk down to you. I mean, she would, in, in truth, send us all up silly, you know, and we loved her for it. David Jacobs. She was extremely popular, extremely lovable, extremely talented, and she, she was an absolutely marvellous person to be with because she was always so bubbly. People used to say she had a laugh in her voice. Well, she had a laugh in her life, and she was like that the entire time. She used to give the most wonderful parties. You'd go to her flat in Kensington. Alma's sister, Sandra. There were always people at our flat. Every night it was a party, a small party. I mean, everybody who drove by Kensington High Street would throw pennies up at the window, and if they saw the lights on, they would come up. And the big parties were for some, either for Tommy Steele or for a friend or a theme... We'd have a country and western theme. We'd, we'd cover all the furniture in check cloth. We'd serve hot dogs, or we'd have uh, for Tommy Steele. We had a, he loves dressing up as kids, so we had a children's party. And we served children's food and that kind of thing. Then we had an Oriental party. Jack Douglas. Alma was a great impressionist, and she did the most unbelievable impression of Doris Day, you know. Over the top, Doris Day, but of course superb. And she had a great gift of mimicking people. And eventually somebody like, would get on the piano and say, come on, Alma, do this, you see, which she would then do. And that led somebody else to get up. I think one of my favourite stories um, in which I actually floored Alma Cogan completely was um, she did um, a television show or series, I can't remember which, with Max Bygraves, you see. And she and Max got on like a house of fire. And I remember after a gap of about a week, I had the devil in me one day, and I rang Alma, you see, and I said, Hello, um, this is Max here. 
So she said, oh, hello, Max, how are you? I said, fine. I said, listen, Elma, I've got a problem. Oh, Max, what is it? What can I do? I'm in love with you, Elma, and I want to leave the wife and kids, and I want you and I to go away. And there was the longest pause in history, see, on the telephone. And she said, Max, what's, what are you saying? I said, it's, it's you and me against the world, Elma. We've got to get this sorted out. But your wife and children, and that was the moment I broke up. <laughs> and Alma just went, I will never, ever forgive you as long as I... But, of course, she started to laugh herself, and that was it. I mean, say, after that Max Bygraves episode, she would always get me to do the Max Bygraves, <laughs> Well, it's most unusual, because uh, it wasn't really a drinking party. as um, In those days, we were sort of very much into right, bags of wine and food and fun. But somehow nobody drank very much because there was so much fun going on and laughter. And I mean, say it was like a, an evening of laughter with Alma Cogan. Um, that was her parties and into the early hours as well. Sandra Caron. Well, nothing was going on. I mean, nobody drank uh, much. There were no drugs and rock and roll, even though the rock and rollers were there. Lionel Blair. I think I got to know Alma very well. She, she was very um, puritanical. For, for want of a better word, she would, she didn't like swearing in her company. She hated swearing. And I used to say to her once, why do you hate swearing so much? Because in show business, everybody says it without... said my father swore... Her father swore every day of his life the most vile things. And I've never liked it since. And it was so awful that whenever I hear it, it reminds me of a bad time. So she hated it. She... Uh, anything sexual. She, uh, th- th- I remember she met Lenny, Lenny Bruce, who was the first comedian that used the F word that we saw at the establishment. But she told him, she said, I think you're funnier when you're not swearing. And he was. Alma would get to meet the most important people. She really would. Not pushy, but it would happen. Alma loved clever people. Vera Lynn. Everybody tried to get to Alma's parties. The food was always excellent, I can tell you. The food was great. And uh, and the pros like to go where there's good food, I can tell you. And they just enjoyed themselves. They loved to go because they, they knew that she knew so many people and therefore you got the opportunity of gain of, say, seeing somebody maybe you haven't seen for some time. So it was a matter of people getting together to say hello to each other. Lionel Blair. Everybody would be there. There would be Tommy Steele playing cards with her mother. There would be Stanley Baker, who was a marvellous actor, and Ellen. They were great friends of Ellen. The, the Beatles would pop up, Noel Coward. That's where Noel Coward said to one of the Beatles, I think it was to John Lennon, come over here and amuse me, or make me laugh. You're supposed to be funny, come over here and make me laugh. It was at Elmer's flat. Alan Freeman. I think Elmer was probably the most fabulous party-giver in the country. You couldn't get in the house. You could hear the music blasting out the windows. It was just great fun. And whenever Elmer said she was going to have a party and she invited you, the one thing that you knew for sure, all the Beatles would turn up and be there. I think it was lovely, the, the, the way she invited people to parties and said, oh, by the way, the Beatles will be there. <laughs> you know, like, sort of, quite incidental. And she was really sending us up because, you know, the Beatles, the Beatles loved her as a lady and they loved her as a singer too. George Martin, record producer for Alma and, of course, the Beatles. She was very friendly with Brian Epstein and Ringo, and they often used to have parties together, because they were all very fond of her, Paul and Ringo particularly. Sandra Caron. He was there 
playing the piano, and um, he said, oh, I'd like you to hear this, this music that I've just written. It's been in my head. So he started playing, and then he said to me, do you have any music paper? I went and found this manuscript, and he wrote the uh, lead down, like a lead sheet. And uh, my mother came in and said, anyone for scrambled eggs? And he said, oh, what a great title. So he wrote down scrambled eggs, and that was it, yesterday. When the Beatles first came up, I think she brought them home after a Sunday night concert. And uh, that was it. They were at our house forever afterwards. My mother saying, please leave at four in the morning. Brian Morris. John Lennon would go off on, on, on a tour or whatever it was, and on the way back, he'd shoot off at, uh, at Alma's at Stafford Court, and um, he'd recorded something, or da-la-la something, and um, he'd play to Alma. The reason he did that was because... She had the same enthusiasm as he did. Sandra Caron. And Alma liked John, and John was besotted with her, I think. Oh, I think he was. And within a long list of people. Oh, definitely. Lonnie Donegan. One of the things about Alma was she was our sort of um, transatlantic receptionist, because any of the American stars that came over somehow always gravitated to Alma, you know, almost immediately upon arrival. Of course, she had these great parties and she's very hospitable you know so uh, she was a very good will ambassador for a, for our, our our stage scene over here and um a lot a lot of the uh, eligible males were very very attracted to her i understand she told me that um carrie grant was more than mildly attracted in fact i believe she that he did uh, actually propose to her and she did say to me i don't know what to do lonnie i said well love um if you have to ask, the answer's got to be no, you see. And you must know it's yes or it's no, you know. And she didn't accept, so I suppose she must have listened to me. Lionel Blair. I can't remember how she met Cary Grant, but she did. And he loved her because she was so funny and very witty. Very witty lady. And when, as I said, when Sammy Davis, we went, Alma and I went to Sammy's first night, and he met us and Alma, Lionel Bart, myself and Sammy were inseparable. There wasn't a night that we didn't see each other when Sammy was in town and Sammy called her the Jewish lady and he adored her. I think if anybody he could have married, I think he could have married Alma and I think she could have married him in some funny strange way. He adored her. Jack Douglas we had a, a sort of common bond. I don't know what it was, but we did get on terribly well together. And I adored her. And whenever we went anywhere, we would invariably, like we did a, a week up at Scarborough, and we just um, met every day and went out every day. And uh, it was the most wonderful, how can I put it, friendship in, in the full sense of the word, you know. We just got on like a house of fire, and that was it. I mean, she had a boyfriend. I was married at the time. And I would say to my wife, I'm going out tonight. Oh, where are you going? Oh, I'm going out with Alma. Oh, fine, that's okay. So it was the most amazing relationship. I actually said to Alma, I said, if anybody could have a legal affair, it would be you and I, because we have the agreement of my wife and your boyfriend. You know, are you going out with Jack? Oh, that's okay. <laughs> Lionel Blair. Alma wasn't a threat to anybody, to any woman or to any man. She was no threat. I think any wife would have said to her husband, oh, go with Alma, you'll have a good time, she'll make you laugh. Honestly, she was, because Alma was no threat, not really. 
Sandra Caron, Alma's sister. If she was linked with married men, it was because they were safe. And she was very, very young herself and inexperienced, maybe. Alma wanted to do everything right, so she was waiting for the right, the right person and the right time to get married, to be established first and be able to have, her, obviously, her own house and have children. And her career took so much time that that was important. That came first. Lionel Blair. I knew all Alma's, but the people that Alma went out with, and I think she would have married Brian, her, her last boyfriend. He worshipped her, you know, and he was right for her. Despite all the inevitable interest in and speculation about Alma's personal life, the only man she ever got engaged to was Brian Morris. Alma and I had known each other over the years because my uncle had a club called the Store Club, and a lot of celebrities went there. And then when I had my club, she used to come up a lot. Alma and I met, and we just, one evening we, we danced, and then we went out. Going out with a Jewish celebrity for a Jewish boy is, you know, is something. My mother went crazy. Alma Coburn? I mean, Jesus Christ. The thoughts of, you know, getting married at Westminster Abbey itself, or whatever, the synagogue or whatever it was. Both of us agreed to, to spend, you know, get hitched. But we never said, oh, hey, everybody, we're engaged. She never wanted that. She didn't want to do it that way. We didn't have undying love. We didn't have that. There's too many things going on. She wrote a song, Now That I Found You. Well, she said she dedicated it to me. She wrote it, and she said, this is for you. Alan Freeman remembers the latter stages of Alma Cogan's recording career. In later years, she was never off the television. Uh, she was always guest-starring for somebody, and she was, she was always very busily engaged, and she was also doing tours, uh, and she was flying all around the world. She was right there, and she seemed to be the centre of attraction, although her records at that particular stage weren't selling. But, of course, at that stage, a lot of the scene had changed, and it was the Beatles, and it was the Liverpool scene. Uh, but the wonderful thing is that Andrew Oldham, the lovely Andrew Luke Oldham, who produced the Rolling Stones, and in fact discovered the Rolling Stones, rang me up and said, listen, I'm doing a recording next week. Would you like to come to the Pie Studios and, uh, and have a lesson? And I said, oh yes. I said, who is it? And he said, uh, well, you mightn't believe this. He said, but I'm actually going to record Alma Cogan. And I said, you're joking. I mean, it was inconceivable that somebody who produced the Rolling Stones would be producing the lovely Alma Cogan. And so I went along to this, uh, to this recording session, and it was, uh, was mind-boggling, because she had recorded the song already on an album. It was called Now That I've Found You, and Andrew had given it a real 60s feel, and regrettably it was never released. I think my own feelings are that had it been released, it might have changed her image and taken her right through the 60s as a top singer. Alma's fiancé, Brian Morris. The two-year period I knew her, she had this Almanac series that she was doing with uh, Lou Grade. Her plans were to do that, and she did have thoughts about how she was going to switch over from being the bubbly, you know, doggy in the window to the mature woman. She was going to do that with the, with the TV show, uh, and by writing her own songs, picking different kinds of songs, singing them in a different way, she, she was frustrated... Barbara Streisand was coming up, different people were coming up. She was wary that her time was now going into another phase. If you listen to her records from 64, 65, her records were very mature. But she was, I, I think, part of Alma was trying to discover, reinvent or rediscover herself again in showbiz. Things were happening for her. 
she had this TV show. Then she went off to South Africa, and and, and then she she did, she did some touring, and different things. And then she wasn't feeling good. Then she had the operation when he just they discovered something in her tummy. Entertainer and close friend Lionel Blair. She was ill, and it was appendix. We thought it was appendix. It was a bit of complications. Dennis Norden. No, and nobody realised she was as badly, as gravely ill as she was. And when you're young, the prospect of being terminally ill is awfully remote. It doesn't. You don't consider it as a possibility. If it does come into your mind, you reject it as um, being one of those things that that don't happen to your friends, your, your contemporaries. Jack Douglas. Now that I know what happened to Alma with the illness, I think she knew about it. I think she somehow had learnt to live with the fact that she was never going to see old age. In retrospect, I think when in the in the latter sort of times with Alma and the discussions and chats and things that we had, she would evade the issue always of, well, in a couple of years' time, I'm going to try and do so-and-so. would be nice if we could do that together, so to speak. She would avoid that issue completely. It was just certain things that would happen. You say, well, why hasn't Alma married? Why hasn't Alma settled down, you know? And now I know the answer to that, but I didn't at the time. And so I think the hardest thing for Alma was to go to bed. When she had a party at the flat, she just kept it going, you know. And people who were sort of 10, 30, 11 o'clock, oh, well, I must be going now, it's bedtime, 2, 3 in the morning were still there. It was just as though she didn't want any of that laughter and fun to end. She kept it going as long as she could. Sandra Caron. I don't think she ever, ever thought she was going to have a short life. I think she'd have been alive now. She, I think she thought she was going to go on forever. I don't, I don't think that. I mean, she was larger than life, but it was going on. Of course, she enjoyed singing, and she enjoyed her popularity. And once that took over, she couldn't stop, because the fans loved her, and she loved them. So when she go out on the stage and she got such an ovation, it became part of the persona, I suppose. Brian Morris. Alma was, I would think, one of the most positive people I've ever met in my life. Alma was absolutely very sure of what she wanted to do and the way she wanted to go. And I think, unfortunately, what happened is that when she was struck down with the illness and when she had the operation and we all felt that it was going to be okay. Somewhere down the road, she must have known that she wasn't feeling a usual self. She would be. She's that. She was that aware of herself that she would know that something wasn't quite right. But she never let on to me. She was never maudling when we went to the tour in in Sweden and we were away three weeks. She was perfectly normal with six rock guys in an enormous station wagon dragging all over. She'd just get up and do her stuff and do her songs and do her show. When we came back from Sweden, she didn't feel well. They admitted her into a room in Middlesex. She was looked at, being looked after by a, an expert called Sir Brian Windier. I saw him. I went to see him. I said, you know, what's happening? And then he told me. He said, it's, there's very little we can do. Lionel Blair. I believe they got a, 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 tried to get a faith healer in and lay on hands. They did everything. But it was apparently it went throughout her body was riddled throughout her body and it was I think it was an illness she had 
in the lower region that she probably ignored and thought, oh, I've got nothing, and, and didn't pay any attention to it. It was so quick. It was awful. Alma's fiancé, Brian Morris. I came home that evening on the night of the 25th. I stayed with her all day. I was home in the middle of the night, I don't know, one, two o'clock in the morning. By that time, Sandra and, and Faye were back in town, and they phoned and said she's gone. Alma Cogan died from ovarian cancer at the Middlesex Hospital in London on October the 26th, 1966, aged only 34. Petula Clark. I mostly remember the day she died, and I was in the States. I was in Connecticut, and uh, I remember walking through the woods. It was a bright October day, and the leaves, you know, these amazing colours that they have there, and I felt so close to her, closer than I had ever really been probably in life. And I I wept, and it was... um, Of course, you know, there were stories when we were together, you know, but nothing that really kind of struck me as much as that moment. Yeah, I I will never, ever forget the day that I learned of her death. Yeah, it was terrible. should never have happened. Alma was buried at the Jewish Cemetery in Bushy, Hertfordshire. Jack Douglas. I don't think in my lifetime I have ever stood at a graveside and seen so many men crying their eyes out over the gravestone. Lionel Blair. Her death was quite a blow to the family. I remember Faye, dear Faye, Arma's mother, coming back after the funeral, and she just said, Why Alma? I do... It does upset me to talk about her very much. Still... And uh, we all went, why? Alma, who was loved and loved everybody. You just couldn't believe that she was 34. I mean, it was ridiculous, ridiculous. Vera Lynn. Well, one is always very sad when they have the loss of an artist such as herself because she was, um, as I said, she was different than uh, so many other girl singers at that time. And uh, she had done so much in her short life and met so many people, so that we were all rather staggered, you know, and uh, because at the top of your career to have that happen to you is very sad. And uh, she was a person loss, you know. It wasn't just what she was in show business, but she was such a nice person. There are some lovely people in show business, but they're not all nice, you know, so that when you lose somebody that's a really nice person, kind-hearted. You feel it all the more. Sandra Caron. My mother's life changed tremendously because there was a void, naturally, of a, of a daughter going, but the whole production in our house was gone. All that huge happening was gone. Cliff Richard. There's no doubt that people miss Alma. Her close friends would miss her, even today. I miss her because I think she was like a generation gap filler. There were conflicts between the new rock stars and the older sort of jazz-orientated singers, and she kind of bridged that. So, you know, I think that if, if she'd been alive, I think she'd have succeeded and continued to succeed. I don't know how big. Lionel Blair. 
I think Alma thought she would, would go into situation comedy, like Marty Kane did, bless her. But Marty would do one-liners. And Marty was a funny lady and a dear fr- also a great friend. But when Marty did a, it was a one-liner with Alma, it was just funny. She'd just say something that was funny. Dennis Norden again. She would have travelled the distance that there was to go, whether she would have gone into movies or things like that, where the movies had already stopped by that time, I, I really don't know. But there's no doubt at all she would have been, as she was then, she would have remained a major figure. Alma's sister, Sandra Caron, became a successful actress, appearing alongside their friend Barbara Windsor in Carry On Camping, and playing Mumsy in the original series of The Crystal Maze on Channel 4. She reflects on what Alma might have gone on to do. I don't think she was ever interested in acting. She had many, many offers and did little bits, but she wasn't interested. She was too much of a personality to be an actress. She thought, rather. I think she'd have a talk show. Then she could have all her mates on. Um, I think she'd have been perfect. A magazine show, or like Opera Winfrey. George Martin. I hope she'd be retired gracefully. I hope she wouldn't have gone on for too long. But... I think she would have been very, very successful. She'd probably be a dame by now, knowing Alma. June Whitfield. Singing away? Throwing parties? Maybe? <laughs> I don't know. I expect she's uh, throwing a few whatever she's landed up. But she'll never really die, will she? She'll always be remembered. I do realise now, if I hear Alma on the radio, I know immediately it's her. And that's what it's all about, isn't it, really? Sandra Caron. I love to sing, I think was uh, a song that really sums Alma up, and because she did, and that was her life. This is Peter Jonathan Robertson. I hope you've enjoyed my documentary on Alma Cogan, for which I'd like to give huge thanks to Alma experts Jeff Bowden and Trevor Benton for their very kind help. You can find me on Twitter at PeterJonathanR2.